like an animal stuck in a cage and I'm ready to break out. My time, my time. None of you people can tell me to stop this time like the last time. You better get ready to race to the top. I'm ready to do this, show you what the truth is. I step on the field, it's time to get real. I'm feeling so ruthless. Ladies and gents, welcome to another awesome episode of Mindset with Muscle. And I'm pretty excited about this episode as it's the first guest that I've had on since the relaunch of Mindset with Muscle. And what a guest it is too. Very excited to introduce you to James Clear. Now, for those of you who don't know who James is, I highly recommend heading on over to jamesclear.com. And James has just launched a brand new book called Atomic habits. Now I've just read the first three chapters and oh my god what an incredible book this is going to be. I've already got a couple pre-ordered and it is due for launch on the 18th of October. So if you are listening to this after the 18th of October I highly recommend heading over to Amazon, check out the show notes and get yourself a copy. It is also on Audible too if you want to have a listen. Anyway, Really hope you enjoy this episode. It is definitely a game changer. Atomic Habits with Mr. James Clear. Ladies and gents, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today, James Clear. James is an entrepreneur, author, and in my eyes, the king of habits. Around half a million people are subscribed to his newsletter email, and this month, James launches his brand new book, Atomic Habits. James, welcome to the Mindset with Muscle podcast. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. I want to kick straight off, James, and talk about your past, specifically getting hit in the face with a baseball bat and how it led you to becoming an expert on habits. Yeah, so when I was in high school, I suffered a very serious injury. Uh, it was an accident, but I was hit in the face with a baseball bat and um, shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is fairly hard to break. It's pretty deep into your skull. And... Um, there was a lot of uh, there was a long period of recovery that followed that. You know, I mean, I was flown to the hospital in a helicopter and couldn't breathe on my own for you know for overnight, and was placed into this coma for a few hours and um, suffered multiple seizures. And so it took me eight or nine months to recover from that. I mean, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing walking in a straight line and just doing like very basic things. Um, so, in a sense my hand was forced, uh, in the sense that I had to start small, you know, I didn't really have an option to have, like, I couldn't flip a switch and suddenly be, you know, uh, better again or to be, be back to full health. So I, I had to just kind of focus on whatever little improvement I could make each day. And I didn't have a language for it at the time. You know, I wouldn't have said like, Oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better or something like that. It wasn't until years later when I started writing about habits and behavior change that, I started to develop a language and understanding of the research around that stuff. But at the time I was practicing it. And so that was sort of where I first got exposed to this idea that small habits can, you know, that first they started to promote my recovery. And then all of a sudden I started to come back a little bit and my baseball career picked up again and I started playing some more. And then uh, about four or five years later, after I had recovered and continued this philosophy of making small improvements each day, I ended up being an academic All-American my senior year and having a, a pretty good career as a as a baseball player. So um, I feel like, you know, my my story isn't heroic or incredible in some way, but I did get to fulfill my potential 
And I think that that's something that habits offer all of us. They offer us the ability to um, maximize whatever potential we, we happen to have. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that I've always been very fascinated with, and that's habits. Of course, I've read um, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and obviously I've, I've read the first few chapters of your new book. And what you have spoken about is your four-step model of habits, which is cue, craving, response, and reward. I was just wondering whether you can explain the model into a bit more detail and really how that model can help people with understanding and improving their habits. Sure. So uh, there have kind of been two big waves of psychology research in the last uh, 100, 150 years. So first wave was behavioral psychology, and that was uh, B.F. Skinner's work. And um, Duhigg's model of Q routine reward has kind of like reinvigorated that and popularized that work. Um and that was great. Psychologists found that people could, if you had the right cue that preceded a habit and you had the right reward following a habit, then you could shape all kinds of behavior. You could get uh, animals to do things in the lab. You could get people to act certain ways in the world. And it was an effective um, solution to a lot of problems. But then there was this second wave of research called cognitive psychology. And that kind of picked up around the 1950s and has continued into the modern day. And basically, researchers found that, oh, also our moods and emotions and thoughts and beliefs can impact our behavior. It's not just about like the external cue and the, the reward that's offered. And so the four stages that I offer in Atomic Habits attempt to integrate those two models. So there's some kind of cue. So, for example, uh, you walk into a room and the room is dark. So that in this case, the cue might be the visual cue of the dark room. Then there's a craving, and this is about the internal states, that kind of cognitive psychology movement. It's about how you interpret the cue, and your interpretation or your prediction can lead to a different craving depending on your current state or how you're feeling, your beliefs, your what mood you're in, um, and I'll give more examples of that in a second. So let's say you walk into the room, the room is dark, that's a cue. You want to be able to see or you want to reduce the uncertainty of being in a dark room, so that's the craving. And that craving motivates you to take a response. So you flip on the light switch. And uh, then finally, the reward in this case is that the room is lit and you get to see. And I give that example of flipping on a light switch in a dark room because we do this all the time every day and it happens in a fraction of a second. And so these four stages, your brain is constantly going through these four um, endlessly and, and all the time, even now as you're listening to this. So. It's a, it's a really very rapid process uh, and a very common process. And the more that you repeat it, the more that you can go through those four stages without thinking about it. You know, when you walk into a dark room, you don't consciously think, oh, the room is dark. I'd like to be able to see. You just flip the light switch on without doing anything um, consciously. And uh, that is the formation of a habit. When you go through those four stages in more or less automatic fashion without having to think about it, you're, um, you're performing a habit. And it's really repetition that leads to the tightening of that feedback loop or the, the cycling through of that, uh, those four stages more quickly. So, for example, if you wake up in the morning and uh, you put your shoe on, you, the cue may be, oh, my shoe is untied. So you see that the, your shoestring is untied. The craving is I want to have my shoes tied. I want it to feel secure in my foot. The response is you tie your shoe and the reward is your shoe is now secure and tied. And uh, again, that's a process that you do all the time and you can do it now after doing it 100 or 500 or 10,000 times. You can do it without thinking. Um, you can 
have a conversation with somebody while you're tying your shoe or think about what's on your to-do list for the morning. And this is the role that habits play in our lives. You know, your brain starts to figure out how to automate the solutions to these recurring problems that you face, like having an untied shoe or walking into a dark room. And the more that you automate those solutions, the more you free up your energy and attention to focus it on other areas of life. Incredible. Now, a lot of people at first, obviously, they need to understand what is going on with the brain. But after they've understood it, of course, they're looking to make those changes. And in your new book, you talk about the four laws of behavior change. Firstly, I just wanted to ask what the difference is between a behavior and a habit, if there is one. And of course, what are your four laws? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say you could just imagine it kind of like a spectrum. So on one side of the spectrum, you have behaviors that you perform like one time. And then the more as you move down the spectrum, you, the more you get into behaviors that you're repeating again and again. And at some point, at some point as you move down the spectrum, you get to behaviors that you've done so many times that you kind of cross this invisible threshold and now you can do them more or less without thinking. And that's, that's where we would say we have a habit. And then if you move even further along the spectrum uh, and you get to behaviors that you like literally can't stop yourself from doing, then you're like kind of an addiction. Um, and so that's how I would think about what is a behavior, what is a habit, what is an addiction? It's kind of like all moving along that same spectrum. And because they're related, because a habit is just a behavior that you have repeated many times, I think in order to describe habits well, we really need a framework that can describe almost any behavior well. Um, and I'm not willing to say that my four-stage model is an exhaustive framework that can describe every human behavior. But I do think it's pretty close. Um, behaviors are, life is much more predictive than you would think. It often feels reactive to us. It feels like things are happening and we're just reacting. But it's really very predictive. You're going throughout life and you're picking up on cues. Many times they're visual. Some of the examples I've given so far are visual. But it can be any of the senses that pick up on a cue, some kind of raw data from your environment. Then you interpret them in some way. That's your craving. You figure out what, you know, am I motivated to do this or not? And then you take your response and you get some kind of outcome, that reward or result. And what I'm really describing there with those four stages is the process of learning. And so your brain is going through that learning all the time. Um, so that's the first thing. And then from those four stages, we have what uh, you just described or uh, hinted at, the four laws of behavior change. And this is really the backbone of the book. Uh, and the reason I wanted to kind of shape atomic habits around this concept is because of what you just mentioned, which is understanding habits is important. Uh, and I get that, you know, uh, out of the way pretty quickly in the book. But what we really want is to be able to design them, to be able to shape them to our liking in some way. And this is where the four laws of behavior change come in. And what I think is the more practical and important discussion is, you know, what can we do about this? So for each stage, there's a law. So for the cue, you want to make it obvious. That's the first law of behavior change. For the craving, the second law is to make it attractive. For the response, the third law is to make it easy. And for the reward, the fourth law is to make your habits satisfying. And so those four laws, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. They're kind of like four different levers you can pull to make it more likely that you'll build a good habit or stick to a good habit. If you want to break a bad habit, you can just invert those four laws. So rather than make it obvious, you want to make your bad habits invisible. Or instead of making it attractive, you want to make them unattractive. 
Instead of make it easy, make it difficult. Instead of make it satisfying, make your bad habits unsatisfying. And so what you have there with those four laws of behavior change and the inversion of the four laws is a pretty um, simple framework for understanding what can I actually do to shape my behavior, to change my habits. And of course, the bulk of the book goes through many, many examples on how to do that. And you can more or less just tie that to absolutely every habit because just as you went through this in my office here right behind me i have an exercise mat with a trigger point ball and a foam roller now in order for me to go to work in order for me to do work i have to walk over the exercise mat so Mm. i've got that constant visual cue of course being obvious that i need to do that and of course thinking about making it attractive less prone to injury in the gym Uh, making it easy of course it's always out it's always walk past it's always visual and obviously make it satisfying i you know i've scheduled to do that every morning and as soon as i finish i have a coffee so i get a kind of reward for that after i've finished and Mm. you know i've always fascinated with i think it's i've done a lot of habits it's not until you go why am i why is that easy that you kind of look back and go oh there is a model for this you know right yeah, that's a really good example. So it reminds me of one, uh, a friend of mine wanted to become good at playing the violin. And he realized like, man, I'm just not practicing enough. I'm not doing this as often as I should. And so he took the violin out of his closet or out of the corner of the room and he placed it right in the middle of his living room so that he would walk past it, you know, dozens of times every day. And uh, lo and behold, he ended up practicing it, you know, about an hour each day or so just because it was more obvious. And it reminds me of your example there, like you have to step over the exercise mat. And, um, you know, the more obvious things are in your life, the more likely you are to be prompted to do them. And this is true, not just for your good habits, like these examples that you just gave, but also for bad ones. So if you, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to stick to a more rigid diet, don't follow a bunch of food blogs on Instagram, you know, like you're constantly being prompted to, to have to resist that. Or if you want to spend less money on electronics, don't follow all the latest tech review blogs because you're continually being prompted to, to make a purchase. So by reducing exposure to the cues of our negative habits, we can also reduce the likelihood that we'll slide into those behaviors as well. Yeah, and it's like just delete the Amazon app from your phone right away. <laughs> right. So, and uh, I, do, I do very much the same with social media. You know, I spend most of my time on social media as it is my job. But every Thursday, I, I've made it a thing that I call phone swap Thursday. So I swap my iPhone with a very old Nokia phone. And mm. it works so well because I tell everyone about it so they know that I'm not online. I don't go online because it's cheating. And then I have a, a completely different phone in my pocket to just cue me every time I go to to grab it. I'm like, oh, there's a reason that you've got this crap phone. It's because you're off the internet today. So, you, you know, it's so interesting that all of these kind of fall in line with a lot of things that I do. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, I, I had two similar strategies that I had to employ while I was writing the book. So the first one was, and I'm, I'm sticking with this one, I'm still doing it. I, I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And it doesn't work for everyone's job, but it's nice to have three or four hours in the morning where I'm not interrupted by the, the phone being next to me. And what's interesting to me is that if the phone is in the same room, I will, I'll pick it up every three minutes. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm the same as everybody else. I'll, I'll look at it all the time, but I have a home office. And so when I keep it in a different room, it's not that far away. It's just up the stairs, maybe 45 seconds away. 
But even though I would check it all of the time if it was right next to me, I never walk upstairs to get it if it's in another room. And it's interesting to me that I like you would think I want it or I would I would want to use it to some degree because I'm checking it so often if it's right next to me. But I never wanted it bad enough to walk 45 seconds. And I think that technology is often like that. It's so frictionless and so convenient that we find ourselves opting for it even when we don't we don't like want it in any deeper sense. We just want to be entertained or distracted for a moment. And when you remove that option from your environment, it becomes much easier to um, to not stray and to fall into the more productive work that you actually do want to do in a deeper sense. Um, so that was one little change that's helped me. The second one was more extreme, uh, but while I was writing the book, I realized I was spending way too much time on social media. And so my assistant would change the passwords on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter every Monday, and I would be locked out all week, and I'd write and work. And then on Friday, she would give them to me and I could log in over the weekend. And then on Monday, we'd do it all over again and lock me out again. <laughs> I, I love that. And it's, I think it's just having the balls to do that. I think a lot of people panic. Um, one of the scariest things that I did last year is um, I, went, I went on holiday and I switched my phone off for a week. And it was the first time that I'd not been on social media for, I think it was six years. Wow. Um, and, and it, you know, what was crazy about that, it Usually it takes me three or four days to switch off when I go on vacation, but the minute that I switched that off, it probably took less than two hours to completely relax on holiday, and it's uh, it's in- incredible. And and the, I think the craziest thing is I came back and I managed to catch up with the world in less than fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you realize how few things are truly urgent and important. You know, I mean, most of the stuff that we consider to be news is just the things that vanish within forty eight hours. Yeah, and uh, it's the same with Instagram and Facebook. You know, they're all optimized for short, bite-sized, one-minute information. And I, you know, I say to people, "What can you learn in a minute?" Okay, you can learn a few little tidbits, but you know, you're just getting fast food information. And Mm. uh, you know, a lot of my time when I'm not, you know, when I'm on a phone swap, I'm on, you know, either your blog, other people's blogs on Medium.com. You know, where I'm getting real information instead of the bite size. And um, I think it's just so important to have a good relationship with all this, uh, all the social media malarkey that's out there. And and habits are definitely the way forward to do that. And you know, making them obvious, put, you know, giving that friction causing yourself to swap your phone or to change your passwords it's such a you know brilliant idea that so many people should really you know think of different ways that they can do that themselves yeah thank you i'm glad you're enjoying the the work i'm putting out i i agree i think that's why i like writing articles because i think the depth of them is a little it's it's important to like fully understand the idea or to be able to unpack something that's um that's worthy of, of a reader's time uh, because we're surrounded by so much noise, by so many little tidbits of that fast food information, as you called it. I, I think it's important to try to raise the quality bar and usually you need at least a little bit more uh, space to do that. So my, my kind of internal metric is if I share something on social media, I want the social media post to be as valuable as the typical article. And then when I share an article, I want the article to be as valuable as the typical book. Um, and so just by trying to like set that high standard, it forces me to make sure like the information might be short, but is it high density? Is it, um, is it really useful? Yeah. And one of my favorite blog posts that you, you did, James was talking about 
delayed return and immediate return environments and obviously mm. we're talking about anxiety and this very much falls in line with why people pick up bad habits is because they get an immediate return or an immediate gratification you know when they pick up their phone they get that dopamine rush they get you know they get addicted to that and uh you know, I found that article so interesting is that we, you know, we, we live in that kind of a, a, you know, we no longer live in that immediate return environment. We live in that delayed return environment now. Well, so this is a crucial thing that I discussed in the book as well. And it relates to the fourth law of behavior change, make it satisfying. So uh, what, I, what I say in Atomic Habits is that this is what I would call the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. And it comes down to this evolutionary wiring that you're referencing. You know, for most of human history, our ancestors lived in tribes. And part of being in the tribe was that uh, you were living in you were living in the wild. And uh, because of that, many of the problems that you face are what scientists would call an immediate return environment where you're worried about, uh, you know, immediate threats. Is there a lion that's close to me? You're worried about uh, your immediate consumption of food and water and where you're getting those. You're worried about taking shelter from a storm. And all of those things are either in your present moment or the very near future. So you're, you're very, um, present moment focused or immediate return focused. Modern society is like the inverse. We've created these institutions where often the rewards are not immediate or our decisions do not have immediate impacts. They, they really have delayed impacts. So, you know, you go to work and you get paid in two weeks or in a month, or you save for retirement and you can retire in decades, or you go to school and you get to graduate in four years. And so studying or saving or uh, working in the modern environment is often about putting in effort now for a delayed return. It's not about putting in effort so you can survive a storm in five minutes. So uh, that shift has led to a little bit of an imbalance, so to speak, in how the brain operates. Because our ancestors evolved in this immediate return environment, the brain is primed for immediate rewards. And you can see this a lot. Pretty much any behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. So for things that we would commonly refer to as bad habits, we still do them because they serve us in some way. And the way that bad habits serve us is often in a more immediate fashion. So if you eat a donut right now, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. The immediate outcome is often favorable. But if you repeat that habit over time, the ultimate outcome, the long-term or delayed outcome that you gain weight or you're less healthy is unfavorable. Good habits are often the reverse. The immediate outcome of going to the gym, for example, is it takes effort, it takes energy, um, you sweat, and so there's a little bit of sacrifice up front. So the immediate outcome feels like it's unfavorable, but the ultimate outcome, if you repeat the habit for three months or a year, or two years or whatever, um, is that you're healthy and in better shape. And so. A lot of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about working with this evolutionary wiring, working with our natural inclination to prioritize immediate rewards. And you can do that by taking the long-term consequences, the delayed costs of your bad habits, and pulling those into the present moment so you feel a little bit of the pain right now and you have a reason to avoid it. And taking the long-term rewards of your good habits and pulling those into the present moment so that you feel good when you do a habit right now and have a reason to repeat it. And uh, to build on that exercise example I just gave, 
for many people, it feels like, oh, it's an effortful uh, sacrifice and requires hard work. But this is one reason why it's important to choose forms of exercise that make you feel good in the moment that you enjoy. Because if it feels good, then you'll have a reason to repeat it. It's like you get an immediate reward while you're waiting for the long-term rewards of a better body or looking fitter in the mirror or the number on the scale dropping or increasing strength while you're waiting for those things to kind of accumulate in the background. The way that uh, I was t- talking to someone about this yesterday and the way that he described it was like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, I have reward one, but while I'm waiting, waiting for reward one to come, I'm focused on reward one A. And I think that's a good way to think about it. There's, you know, what is the immediate outcome that makes you feel good in the moment that you can focus on that and you have a reason to repeat it while you're waiting for the delayed outcomes to accumulate in the background? Yeah, very much so. You know, something that I say to people is that, you know, a lot of people focus, let's just say they have got 40 pounds to lose and, you know, they focus on the outcome base 40 pounds. And I, you know, what I say to people is that you can get wins today and they're simple wins by drinking you know, drinking three liters of water, walking 10,000 steps and eating three meals and a snack. They're three very easy things that you can tick off a list, but if you repeated them daily, you'd get to your outcome-based goal. And, you know, when people break things down like that and say, look, you know, it's very it's very nice to tick boxes, especially boxes that are gonna to contribute to your outcome-based goal. Right. I think the ultimate version of this is the reinforcement of your desired identity, right? So like uh, when someone um, drinks three liters of water, or does their 10,000 steps or, um, you know, follows their three meals and a snack plan, each of those is an instance of being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts or being the type of person who cares about their health. And, uh, if you, that's, if that becomes an important part of your identity, then you can feel satisfied as soon as you get started. You know, as soon as you walk in the gym, you can feel like the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And, um, if you, if you internalize that identity, then you can start to feel satisfied, uh, right away and not have to wait for the scale to change or or the weight to add up on the bar or so on. And it's so interesting with identity-based habits. You know, you have a lot of friends and family say, oh, that, you know, that's Sean, he's really good at directions. And it kind of solidifies that because people are saying that that person's very good at directions, they mm. tend to become better at directions because they take a sense of pride in it. So they focus more effort and energy into, you know, making that true, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of identity, which is that it's often socially reinforced. So... um you know, I describe identity-based habits in chapter two, and the I, I think it's a really crucial piece of long-term behavior change because, like, there's one thing to say I want this, but to say I am this is like a different level of change, right? Like, the real goal is not to run a marathon; it's to become a runner. Uh, the goal is not to write a book; it's to become a writer. Because once you identify and say, "Oh, I am a writer." in a sense, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already believe that you are. So sitting down to write every day is not, it's not a hassle. It's not a sacrifice for someone who identifies as a writer. It's just what they do because that's who they are. And I think the method to do that, to get there, to like reshape your identity, this is why small habits are so useful, um, is that it's like each action you take kind of casts a vote for the type of person that you believe that you are. And so as you continue to cast those votes, like you show up each day and write one sentence, um, it's like the evidence accumulates a little bit. And as that evidence builds up and the votes continue to be cast, 
eventually you have like you tip the scales in your favor and you have a reason to believe that about yourself, which is why I think small habits are so useful. But as you just mentioned, there's a, a social component to this as well. And what we get praised for or rewarded for or what people tell us that um, that seems to come natural to us or we're good at, all of those things are signals. They're all votes for a certain type of identity. And so you need to be careful about who you hang out with and, and what they're, uh, where you're getting praise or, or criticism from because we end up internalizing those things and starting to believe them about ourselves. And once an identity is adopted, it becomes like a further reason to, to either do or avoid a behavior. You know, if you adopt the identity of I'm bad at math, then whenever someone hands you a math problem, you're like, oh, I'm not going to try on that. Like, I'm bad at that. Um, but if you adopt the identity of I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, it can be snowing outside and you're like, well, I'm still going to the gym because that's, that's what I do. And so it can be either something that serves you or hinders you. James, you, you talk about 1% better every day. And I found that really fascinating, especially your plane analogy. And, you know, what you said is if you get 1% better every day for a year, you'll end up 37 times better by the time you're done. Just wondering whether you could talk a bit more about that. And, you know, it's very interesting because something that I said to a lot of people is, you know, if you want to, you know, just read one chapter a day, you know, if I put 30 books on your desk and said, I want them read by the year, you'd get overwhelmed. But if I just said, can you commit to, you know, reading one chapter a day for 10 minutes? If you did that every day, you'd get those 30 books read. So <laughs> that, you know, that's kind of what I say to a lot of people because, you know, it, it's true. And, and it's that very much that kind of do that one 10 minute thing every day and then wait for a year to see the result. Right. So this is what you're referencing here is kind of the, the core idea of why, why bother with getting 1% better each day yeah. or why, you know, what's powerful about that. And the, the power of it is that habits don't really add up. They compound. Yeah. They, you know, the same way that, that money, I, I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. So the, the same way that money multiplies uh, through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. And you know, that compound interest curve that where it's kind of like that hockey stick curve, it, it doesn't feel like very much in the beginning, right? It's, it's basically flat. You're kind of like stuck on this plateau. And this is often how habits feel as well. You know, you're doing something and the difference between a choice that is 1% better or 1% worse on any given day doesn't really feel like anything. Um, you know, the difference between eating a salad for lunch versus a burger and fries doesn't really feel like a whole lot. Your body looks basically the same in the mirror that night. The scale doesn't really change. You don't really have much to show for it. Uh, the difference between studying Spanish or Chinese for an hour tonight or not studying it, again, is not a whole lot. Like you haven't learned the language either way. But it's only when those daily choices, those 1% better or 1% worse decisions compound over two years or five years or 10 years that it becomes very apparent the value of making a slightly better decision on a daily basis and the cost of making a slightly worse one. And so the the airplane analogy that you referenced, if you I actually calculated this, this is actually yeah, these are real numbers. So <laughs> if you're in LA and you uh, are on a plane and you're flying to New York City, when you leave LA, if your pilot adjusts the heading just three and a half degrees south. Um, which is barely anything. The nose of the airplane shifts just like seven or eight feet. I mean, you, you would barely even notice it on the runway. Um, just by doing that three and a half degree shift, you end up in Washington, D.C. instead of New York. So you're hundreds of miles away by the time you get across the United States. 
And uh, this is a, the similar concept to changing your habits or making these small 1% improvements each day. It feels like very little on a daily basis, but the trajectory, the path it sets you on is completely different. And this is why I say you don't really need to be concerned with your current position, with your current level of success that much. You should be much more concerned with your current trajectory because if the trajectory is good, all you need to do is keep walking it. And that's why, you know, like time will multiply whatever you feed it. So good habits make time your ally. There's working for you. It's compounding for you. And bad habits make time your enemy. It's compounding against you. And so as long as you're on a good trajectory, all you got to do is just keep showing up and let time do the work for you. Fantastic. So every year, James, you do an annual review, which I absolutely love because I do a very similar thing to my, you know, for myself. Why do you think people struggle so much with self-awareness and most importantly, self-assessment? Mm. Yeah, so that's a great question. This is something I cover in the final chapter of the book, which I call the downside of good habits. And so the downside of building good habits is that as a habit is formed, you naturally become less aware of it. I mean, that's kind of the purpose of why your brain builds habits in the first place. It tries to automate things so that you don't have to pay attention to them. And that's great because then you can get things done that uh, without having to allocate attention and energy. But the downside is when you can do something good enough on autopilot, you start think you stop thinking about how to do it better. You know, you kind of start overlooking some of the minor errors and mistakes that you make. And there are some interesting studies that have been done that show that there's often like a peak in your proficiency or uh, fluidness with a behavior, and then you actually once it becomes habitual, there's like a slight decline a little bit. So one of the studies looked at surgeons and uh, as they're going through residency and kind of learning and developing their skills, practicing surgeries for the first time and continuing to get better, their, their skills go up and up and up. Their performance continues to improve. They get into their career and like maybe a couple years in, they hit this peak where they're, they're at their best. And then it's not that they fall off a cliff or anything. They're still good at the surgeries, but there's a slight decline in their ability after a few years because they've done it so many times that they stop paying attention to little errors. And uh, this is true in any field. We, we develop proficiency and then we stop paying attention. And so one of the, the ways that I think about this is the cycle of self-improvement, is it kind of goes like this. At the beginning, there's some self-awareness. You have to be aware of what you're trying to change. Then there's like a period of deliberate practice. So like I just described those first few years for the surgeons where you're thinking effortfully, you're, being, uh, you're doing conscious, deliberate practice and, and – um, and trying to improve on a daily basis, you're putting effort in. And then at some point, as you practice it more and more, you shift from deliberate practice to habit formation. You know, it becomes effortless and routine. And once you get to that point, you need to start the cycle again. You need to return to self-awareness and reassess what are my habits now, where am I, and then what's the next kind of frontier that I need to focus on so I can continue to improve. And um, again, this is something that could apply to like almost any area. You see this kind of behavior a lot with people in the gym. They they start to work out and they, you know, at first they have to put some effort in to build an exercise habit and they're trying to figure out what exercises to do and so on. And then they kind of get into a pattern where they are going to the gym, but they start kind of operating on autopilot. They just do the same exercises, the same reps, the same sets, uh, the same weight all the time. They don't really think about it. And pretty soon they've been going to the gym for a few years, but they do the same thing every time. And they're like, well, I, you know, I, I don't really understand why I'm not advancing. And it's because there's no, 
there's no like a uh, process of continuous improvement there where you're trying to do some progressive overload or thinking about how to, to imp- increase the intensity or the volume or whatever. And in order to do this, in order to have that cycle of continuous improvement working for you, you need a process of reflection and review. And that's where in my case, the annual review comes in or I do an integrity report in the, uh, in each summer where I kind of assess my core values and, and how those work out for me. And, um, And processes like that are crucial for keeping you aware of the habits that would otherwise kind of slide onto autopilot and, uh, and then maybe your performance declines a little bit. So the questions I ask in my annual review, there's, there's three of them. The first is what went well this year? So this is a chance for me to like track my habits. Think about how many workouts I do, how many workouts I do per month. Um, what was my average over the course of the year compared to, to last year? Um, how many articles did I write? How many new places did I visit? And then the next question is what didn't go so well? So, you know, what habits did I try to build or things did I try to accomplish that I kind of fell short on? And then the third question is, you know, where do I go from here? Um, you know, like what am I working toward? And those three questions allow me to become aware of my habits and then try to think about, okay, what do I need to adjust next time? And it's a simple process, but it's just a good approach for trying to mitigate some of the the mistakes or pitfalls that I just described with habit formation. And it kind of brings me to think of a quote, and that's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And it tends to be mm. what a lot of people do because they don't assess where they are or what they're struggling with because they're not willing to accept that they have uh, an issue or a problem that needs to be resolved. It sounds simple, but if nothing changes, nothing's going to change, you know, and so often we continue to repeat the same habits, but want a different outcome. And so you need to be willing to assess that and and experiment a little bit with a new strategy. And this is, this also gets to something that's central for building habits. You know, I'm very proud of the book that I wrote. I think that the framework is highly actionable and uh, that pretty much anyone can read the book and get something useful out of it. But you need to have a willingness to self-experiment. You need to have a willingness to implement ideas. The very best advice in the world is useless if you don't have a willingness to try things out and to see if you can massage it a little bit to fit into your life and your circumstances. And so um, that willingness to try new things, to experiment, is crucial uh, so you can avoid the insanity of trying the same thing over and over again. James, you've got an incredible pin post on Twitter. You know, it's so simple, but so effective. And I've got kind of a little bit of a challenge for you. If you were to pick three of the ones on that list as the most important for you to do every day, which ones would they be? Mm, that's a good question. So just to get people up to speed, this this post on Twitter is a list of habits that I think have a high rate of return in life. So, so things like sleeping eight hours a day, lifting weights three times a week, go for a walk each day, save at least 10% of your income, read a little bit every day, drink more water and less of everything else, and leave your phone in another room. So uh, of course the answer to which ones are most important is going to depend on uh, an individual's goals in their life. Yeah. But I do think that there are some things that kind of unlock um, a higher level of performance for, for pretty much anyone. So if I had to pick some, I think what I would say is 
it's so hard for me to not pick exercise because I, for me, I feel like that's my most important one. Yeah. But if I'm going with the foundational ones for, for what I think will serve everybody, I'm going to say sleeping eight hours a day. Um, because if you sleep well, then that's probably the ultimate like productivity hack or setting yourself up for, uh, for performance in every other area. Um, saving at least 10% of your income, because if you can manage to save, then you open up options and opportunity for yourself that, uh, if you're living paycheck to paycheck or dollar to dollar, you just don't have those options. Um, and so things like many of these other habits, like lifting weights, well, if you save 10% of any of your income, now you have some options for, uh, for paying for a gym membership, for example. Um, and then the third one that I would pick is reading every day. And I picked that one because if you read, you have the chance to solve almost any problem that you face, you know, like don't have enough money to go to the gym. Okay, great. You can read a book about body weight training and figure out how to get good exercise without having to purchase anything. Uh, want to start a new career? Great. You can read a book about that career in that industry and learn what you need to learn to, to get started. Um, want to figure out how to become an influencer on social media? Like there's a book on that. You want to figure out how to, uh, understand habits and how to build better behaviors. There's a book on that. It, it really doesn't matter what you're trying to learn. Reading is sort of like a meta habit that unlocks all the other habits that you're, you're interested in. Definitely. And it's something I say to people is that you've got, you know, a very intelligent person's 15, 20 years of work in a 10 pound book. And it's just like, if, if that's not crazy enough for you to, to go out and buy something such as, you know, so simple as a book, then I don't know what is. Yes, that's so true. The depth of uh, thinking and knowledge that goes into books is probably still the highest uh, of any other platform that you could, uh, that you could consume information on. So it's a, it's a huge bargain. I mean, books offer an incredible amount of wisdom for the, the cost. Definitely. So James, your new book, Atomic Habits, is out soon. And when I obviously launch this podcast, it's going to be out on the 16th of this month. Is that correct? That's correct. So the Atomic Habits launches on October 16th in the US and October 18th in the UK. Amazing. And where's the best place for somebody to grab a copy? And most importantly, where can people find out more about you? Sure. So you can just find my work in general at jamesclear.com. And there are a variety of articles there. I have things organized by category and topic. So feel free to poke around and see what interests you. Uh, if you like what you see, then you can jump on the newsletter, which is just jamesclear.com slash newsletter. But uh, the book, which is called Atomic Habits, can be found at atomichabits.com. And uh, there are links to the book there, both for the US and UK versions. Um, there is uh, print, ebook, and audiobook formats. I read the audiobook myself. And also on that page, there are a variety of bonuses that are available. So there's like bonus guides on how to apply the ideas in the book to parenting or how to apply the ideas to business. There is a secret chapter that is not included in the, the final book um, and a variety of other templates and guides for, for implementing some of the ideas. So anyway, all of that is at atomichabits.com. Amazing. I'll, I'll put that into the show notes as well. Well, James, I finish every podcast with the same quote, and it's what you put in your body affects how you look and how you feel, and what you put in your head affects what you think and what you do. And today, you've been filling your heads with James Clear and Jamie Alderton. James, thank you ever so much for coming on the Mindset with Muscle podcast today. Great. Thank you so much. Lower the lights down. Hand over my crown. Hand over my heart. I do this for my town. I do this for my crown. So turn me your